Well, welcome, welcome. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor, and it is Easter Sunday, and I'm just so grateful that you are here. I hope somebody made you feel welcome today. I hope somebody made you feel like family today at the gathering. We really believe that family is a big part of our culture, and so we want you to feel wanted and welcome and seen. We believe this isn't a church where you can just come in and you should just disappear into the crowd, but rather it is a church where you should feel like you are a part of something and like you are known. And so I hope that somebody made you feel that way this morning. And uh, this Easter Sunday, I'm just so grateful to start a brand new series with you called Here For You. And I want you to know that your church is here for you. We are here for you. I I wanted to start this message series today on Easter Sunday because we believe the church is here for you and that Jesus came here for you. I want to talk about the resurrection and how he came here for you today and what that means for you today. And the way that I want to help explain it is to step back about 14 generations from Jesus. I want to take a step back into the Old Testament for a moment this morning to talk about the power of what Jesus has done for us and what it means for us. If you have ever read through the Gospel of Matthew, it opens up with a long list of names, a genealogy. And Matthew gives us that genealogy to show us some prophecies fulfilled to help us understand where Jesus came from and who was in the lineage of Jesus. And one of those names, uh, 14 generations back, is David. David, King David, son of Jesse. And David, uh, maybe you know him from David and Goliath fame. We know David and Goliath is a story in our culture. You know, a little boy threw a little rock at a big man and the man fell. And that was David. And David became king of Israel. the second king of Israel. Now, David was following a king named King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was chosen by the people of Israel. They demanded a king. They were a theocracy, and then they became a monarchy because they saw all the kingdoms around them had a king. And so they said, God, please give us a king. God relented, and he let them choose one. The one that they chose was the tallest, most handsome guy they could find. It's exactly what we would do if given the opportunity to choose a king. We'd pick, you know, like Chris Hemsworth. He's from another country, but we'd let him be our king because... You know, you've seen him. And so they pick Saul, and his outside is beautiful, but his heart is not. And over time, his heart became more and more rotten as a king. And so God removed his hand of anointing from Saul. That means the anointing of king and that he had allowed Saul to be king. He removed that anointing, and he put it on a 14-year-old boy named David. David did not become king immediately. Sometimes God makes a promise to you that takes decades to fulfill. And so David had this anointing on his life, but he was not king yet. He served Saul. He went and worked for King Saul. Uh, He helped King Saul. Uh, He became close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. But over time, Saul became aware of David's anointing uh, and resented and hated him, even tried to kill him a few times. He was not very good to David. Eventually, decades go on, and King Saul and his son Jonathan are both killed in a battle. And immediately, David is made king because he's been anointed and chosen by God to be king. I want to pick up right at that moment. David's very first act 
as king is what I want to focus on just for a few minutes today before we get into the story of the resurrection and Easter Sunday and everything that it means. Because I believe that the Bible echoes itself over and over. You see the same themes and the same important moments repeated throughout the scriptures. And the moment of David stepping into kingship is one that's repeated in the moment of crucifixion and resurrection. And so let's take a look at it. The story is in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. Uh, my iPad has 4% charge on it, you guys. I plugged it in last night, and I'm learning now that that plug wasn't plugged into a wall. So if you see my face go blank, and then I just start talking about Star Wars at some point during the message, you'll know that I'm off book. All right, uh, verse 9. So David is king, and he's sitting on the throne. It's his first act. It says, David asks, is anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. This son of Jonathan is lame in both feet because... As he was fleeing the battle where his grandfather and father were killed as a child, he was being carried by the nurse, and the nurse dropped him and became lame in both feet. He couldn't walk very well. It became a defining factor for him. Verse 4, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Lodabar. Let's pause for a second to talk about Lodabar. In my Bible, there's a little... Uh, asterisk on Lodabar, and at the bottom it says no man's land. Lodabar was no man's land, nothingville. It was a place of emptiness. There had been a great battle a couple hundred years prior where the city was decimated, and no one ever bothered to rebuild it. It remained ruins, but many people still lived in those ruins, people who wanted to disappear from society, who wanted to exist but not thrive. It was a place of existence, not a place of life. That is where the son of Jonathan is. My guy, I've got, oh, is this going to charge my, this is going to charge my iPad? Looks like a phone. Hello? Yes, this is Pastor John Mark. It's working. Matt Dunn, everybody. A man of technology. A man about the people. All right. Uh, and so, where were we? We were in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, I practiced all week saying this name. Okay, so if I mess it up, I did my best. When Mephibosheth, if you are pregnant and you are looking for a good, strong, biblical name for your son, I bring to you Mephibosheth. You can call him Mephi. Mephibosheth... Son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, and at your service, he replied. And I imagine that was a heavy response. Mephibosheth had no idea what he was doing in the king's palace. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? 
the Bible echoes themes over and over and over again. And one of the most common threads that we see from the beginning to the end of Scripture is undeserved kindness and redemption. Undeserved kindness and redemption. The story of David and Mephibosheth echoes the story of Jesus and the resurrection and everything that it means for us. And it gives instruction to the church and the people of God as to who we're meant to be. Because the bottom line today is this. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, you have a seat at the table. And a great work has been done to prepare it for you. I want to talk about Mephibosheth for a second in this story. Three things that you should know about my guy, Mephi. Mephibosheth should have been killed. He should have been killed. I don't know how much you know about kings and succession, but if you've ever seen The Lion King, there's an incredible song called Be Prepared, which will tell you all you need to know. Uh, In that story, there is a king's brother who usurps the throne, and the most important part of his plan is to kill the son of the king because he doesn't want him to ever come back and reclaim the throne. You guys, it's Hamlet. It's a great story. If you've never seen The Lion King, go watch it for Easter Sunday. I recommend it. If you've ever watched any TV about the Middle Ages, Game of Thrones, anything like that, you know that it is the whole line of the family of a usurped king that usually ends up dead. This was accepted, it was known, and it was really what was expected to happen when a new king and his line took the throne. Either the descendants of that king were exiled forever and ever, they were imprisoned forever and ever, or they were killed so that there was no risk of them coming for the throne. Mephibosheth should have expected to die. When he got summoned to Jerusalem from Lodabar, certainly his expectation was that this was the end. And he could either try to run from the king, which would be very difficult because he didn't have the ability to run on his own, or he could just accept his fate. Mephibosheth just accepted his fate. And by all rights, David should have had him killed. But that's not how the story went. Second thing, is that David is reflecting God's character. He's reflecting God. He's reflecting the nature and the character. First Samuel chapter 13 tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. It's hard, really, to understand the character of God sometimes, you know, as you read through the whole of Scripture. But the Bible's given us two very clear places that we can look to know a little bit about who he is and what he does for us. The first is all throughout the Gospels because the nature and the character of Jesus is the nature and the character of God. The second is in this man, David, and the way that he treats people and the way that he leads and the way that he establishes his kingdom is the things that God wants and desires. He reflects the heart of God in a lot of the decisions that he makes. Now he goes sideways, and we'll talk about that later in this series, but his heart reflects God. And when he summons Mephibosheth, he wants to show him God's kindness. David was close with his father, Jonathan. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And we'll talk, that factored into this decision some, but really, this was David's desire to reflect the kindness of God as his first act as king. The actions of David help us understand who God is. So David invited this man back into the palace that he wants to live in. He'd been in Lodabar, he'd been in no man's land, he'd been in a barren wasteland, and he got invited back to the place he remembered being as a child. This mighty palace, this beautiful place carved from stone in the most majestic city in the whole region at the time. He was restored the lands of his grandfather. Those lands didn't belong to Mephibosheth anymore. 
They belonged to whoever was king now. He had no right or no claim. He did not deserve the lands that were given to him, but they were given to him anyways. He was invited to the table of the king, a place where only very special people got to eat, a place of a revered spot to go and dine every day. David said, I want to offer you a place at my table for the rest of your life. Undeserved kindness. David is reflecting the character of God as God showers things upon us that we don't deserve, the opposite of what we deserve, things that we didn't expect to receive, places we never expected to be, is what God wants to give us and bring us. It's what Easter is all about. And that's what David provides for Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth had to accept the invitation. That's the third thing, is that Mephibosheth had to leave Lodabar. I'm sure there was some fear in this moment for Mephibosheth. He was certain, probably, that he was summoned to the king to either spend his life in an iron mask locked in some high tower or to be executed. But instead, he was offered land near Jerusalem and a seat at the king's table. So amazing. But I wonder if he second-guessed it. What if the king changes his mind? What if things go wrong? What if people abandon me? What if people leave me? What if it doesn't go the way I need it to, the way that I expect it to? What if those relationships fall apart? What, what, what if people notice all the things that are wrong with me? What if people fixate on the things that I'm most ashamed of and most embarrassed about? What if that's what they see when they see me? At least in Lodabar, I'm unseen. I'm hidden. I'm, I'm away from all of that. It, it may not be a great place to live, but I know what to expect when I wake up. I understand Lodabar. Lodabar makes sense. Lodabar is what it is. I'm existing here. Should I take a risk at something better that I just, I don't know if I could trust? He could have stayed in Lodabar. But instead, he acted in boldness and faith, and he accepted this incredible gift that had been offered to him. Mephibosheth was now seated at the king's table. And so, maybe you're wondering, Pastor, it's Easter Sunday, and you've not even mentioned eggs or bunnies yet, and I understand. What I want to do is talk about the resurrection story of Jesus and how it reflects what was done for Mephibosheth today. It's Easter. He is risen. Somebody say, he is risen indeed. He is risen. Come on. So here's what that means for us. Here's what that means for us. First, we should be dead. We should be dead. Uh, my favorite tool for evangelism is an old school tool called the Romans Road. I love to travel down the Romans Road. I know there's some Romans Road people in here today. And the Romans Road is what we call a series of verses in Romans, a book in the Bible, a New Testament book, that just really clearly explain what it means that Jesus went and died and was resurrected, why it's important. And it begins with Romans 3.23, which says, the way, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned 
and fallen short. Every single person, it doesn't matter who you are, has done something that separates us from God's goodness. You know, we were created to live eternally in the presence of the one who created us. He made you with gifts. He, he gave you, he created you with assignments in mind, good things that he wanted for you. And he did that for every single person, but because in the very beginning of time, this thing called sin, this choice of things that don't honor God entered the world, we've been making the wrong choices ever since. We've been choosing to move away from God. Uh, we've done things that we're not proud of. We all have some skeletons in our closet. We've done things that have operated in opposition to how we were made to live. We've all done it. And in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. It means that what we deserve, that the only thing that satisfy it, that the cost of the choices that we make that separate us from God is death. It's what we deserve. Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, the triumphant entry is what it what is called in Christian tradition. He came into the shouts of Hosanna and praise. People were making a carpet of cloaks and of palm branches for him to enter the city on. And they're all so excited that he's there because he's a celebrity, but their praise is empty because they're going to turn on him in a couple days. On Tuesday of Passion Week, one of his followers has already decided in his mind to betray Jesus and to turn him over to the authorities, Judas. Now, Judas becomes the real villain in this story. We give Judas a really hard time. We think of Judas as the absolute criminal mind at play during the Passion Week, but I think Judas is relatable. You see, Judas had been a follower of Jesus for most of Jesus's ministry with the expectation that Jesus was going to establish a kingdom, that he was going to usurp the Roman government, that he was going to do these great and big things, that the world was going to know who Judas was because Judas was with Jesus. He had all these plans and these expectations of God. He, he wanted him to be something. He had a dream for him. He had a dream for himself in light of God, and none of those things came true. And so he became disenchanted. He got tired of waiting. He got tired of waiting on God. I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you've just been tired of waiting on God, where you had expectations for him that never got met, where you had expectations for your life that you still haven't seen. It didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. It took a turn you never saw coming. And, and it makes us feel a little angry at somebody. Somebody has to be responsible for this. I had a vision for my life and it didn't play out. And maybe that's caused you to turn on God at some point. I just think we've all had Judas moments. I, I think that on our worst days, many of us would have made similar decisions. He didn't know if Jesus was the son of God. He questioned him because he didn't do what he wanted him to do or what he expected him to do. And so Judas went to the Pharisees and said, I'll give you Jesus. You can have him. I'll turn him over to you. And they offered him some money and he accepted it. And then he bided his time. The next day they were at dinner and they were having the Passover feast. And Jesus was reclaiming what the Passover feast meant and what it meant to us. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which will be broken for you. He is trying to help his disciples see that something big is about to happen. He passes around the wine and he says, this represents my blood which is going to be poured out for you because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus is trying to help them see that he's going to pay that price for them that you have a debt and he wants to take it away from you. He wants to pay your debt and he wants to pay it in full. He tells his disciples that he's going to do that. He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be resurrected in three days. So don't even worry about it. Be super chill, okay, guys? And they don't listen at all. 
They don't hear him. And that whole dinner time, Judas is sweating. He's nervous because he's decided that this is not who he says he is. And so Judas gets up during the meal and leaves and he goes and finds the Pharisees. Meanwhile, Jesus takes his disciples on a walk to a garden and he's telling them about the power of the Holy Spirit and that something greater is coming. And he's trying to prepare them for what they're gonna have to do and what it means for them. And he's telling them all these things and they they get in the garden and he's praying and he's praying for me and he's praying for you and he's praying over us and over the life that we're gonna live as his followers. And he's praying over the current disciples that he has and the work they have to do establishing the church. And he's praying over the sacrifice he's about to make and he's begging God for another way. But then and he knows there's only one way for sin to be forgiven, for us to be in his kingdom forever, and that is for the wages of sin to be paid through death. So he submits himself to it. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. And then the garden lights up, fire and flame. And someone comes marching in, leading a bunch of soldiers, and it's Judas, who once knew Jesus, who was in the presence of Jesus, leading people to Jesus. He betrays him with a kiss. That tells them who Jesus is, and they arrest him, and they take him away for trials. And he goes through different trials with different kings and and governors and high priests, and they're all questioning him and yelling at him and accusing him, and he's mostly silent the entire time. And finally, that morning, a crowd is gathered, and these people are good people. They all worshiped him on his way in. They're not villains. They're not some dastardly criminal. They're just the people of Jerusalem, doing what they think they should do. They're following the crowd. They're, they're believing that this man must be bad if someone's telling them that he's bad. And so they gather outside the palace of the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate brings him out and says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. I don't think he's committed any crimes, but you brought him to me. So this is Jesus, and it's your custom that I release a prisoner today. So how about Jesus and there's this other guy, Jesus Barabbas, who is clearly a bad person. He is, he is bad. He's like a bad dude. He's got all kinds of tattoos. He's got a neck tattoo for sure. And he's a criminal. He's a murderer. Do you want Jesus Barabbas? Do you want Jesus of Nazareth? And they said, give us Barabbas. Because inside of all of us, we have the ability to make the wrong decision. We just do it. It doesn't mean you're a criminal or a bad person. It means that you have something broken inside of you that leads you to the wrong choices. And Barabbas runs free, and Jesus is over here. And so Pilate goes, well, what do you want me to do with this man, Jesus? And the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. And so Pilate says, this is on you. I wash my hands of it. Take him away to be scorched and crucified. And they lead him away and they begin to whip him 39 times. See, Jesus, he understands that it's really, really hard for us to make the right choice all the time. And so instead of asking us to, he just decides to pay the price for us. He came to give us life. John 10.10 says the thief, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the thief, your enemy, came to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life, have abundant life. Not just have life, but to really live. To have a great life. So, second thing 
is that Jesus made us a seat at the table. He made us a seat at a table we just never deserved to sit at. We had been in that crowd. You and I, we would have been there shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And they took him away and they whipped him 39 times. And his blood is everywhere because this is a price that can only be paid in blood. And after they've whipped him, he puts a heavy cross on his back and he begins to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. And he gets to a a hill called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, super ominous, very scary. We call it Calvary. And on that hill, he had nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he was raised up on a cross, and for six hours he hung there while those people that had shouted crucify him now spat on him and mocked him as he died. Soldiers, even one of the thieves next to him, mocked him. And what were his final words on our behalf? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's not a table we deserve to sit at. But this is the distance that he was willing to go to create a space for us there. After that, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then just like that, he was gone. He died. And at that second, at that moment, it says that the ground shook. that, That tombs split open. That there's this six foot thick curtain in the, in the holy temple of Jerusalem that separated the literal presence of God from the people of God. And at the moment Jesus died, that curtain was torn in half from top to bottom. And the presence of God was no longer hidden from man. Because in that moment, all the mistakes we ever made, every time we made the decision to abandon the God who we thought had abandoned us, every time we shouted crucify him because it's what the people around us were saying, every time we had made a decision that moved us further away from him, a price had to be paid and he paid it once and for all. He did it. He took the punishment. He took our debt. He took everything that we had ever done upon himself so that we could have a seat at his table. And the story didn't end there because it's not just a a table in a palace that one day disappears and crumbles and falls. It's an eternal place. We've spent so much of our lives surrounded by death the way of this world. There is death everywhere. We've just come through a global pandemic. We've been touched by it. We've been hurt by it. We are afraid of it. But Jesus said, I don't want you to be fixated on death anymore. I want to give you a future that contains life. And after three days, dead and in the tomb, everything changed. Matthew 28, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. 
For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here. He's risen just as he said he would do. Come and see the place where he lay and then quickly go and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy and ran to his disciples. Those women it's talking about are some women that had gone to embalm Jesus, performed some sacrifice. Some, some rites that you did for a person who had died, but they were very surprised to learn Jesus didn't need any of the embalming because he wasn't dead anymore. And one of those women was a woman named Mary Magdalene. In fact, John's gospel tells us that the very first person who saw the resurrected Jesus was this woman, Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute. Mary Magdalene had seven demons living inside of her at one time that Jesus had cast out. Mary Magdalene was a woman in a society that didn't recognize them as citizens. And yet, she got to be the first. Why? Because Jesus made her a seat at the table. Because it doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what position the world puts you in. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what baggage you bring into the relationship. It doesn't matter what outward disabilities the world sees. Like Mephibosheth, it doesn't matter what it is. He made a seat at the table. And it's exactly what he's done for you. You see, the Bible shows us these moments because it really needs, it knows, God knows you, he made you. And he knows that what we're gonna do is say, not me, everyone but me, I don't deserve this. I'm disqualified from this. I don't know if I believe this was for me or if I deserve it or if I should enjoy it or any of that, I don't know. But the Bible says, but what about Mephibosheth who should have been killed for being an heir to the throne? who was disabled in a society that cast his people aside? What about Mary Magdalene, whose past made her unclean and unworthy of being around a rabbi, and yet she was the first to touch our risen Savior? He has made you a seat at the table no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done because of what Jesus has done. You have a seat at the table. You have claim to lands you never even thought you would see again. He's restored things to you that you thought were long gone. He has restored a future to you that you didn't even see or imagine for yourself. And he has brought you a gift in sonship at that table. But if you're going to take it, then you got to do just like my guy Mephibosheth did. And you got to leave Lodabar. Mephibosheth leading Lodabar, was, that was pretty scary. Because he understood it. He knew what it was like to live in Lodabar. Lodabar just means nothingville, you guys. It means no man's land. A place of obscurity. A place of mediocrity. We've all been through so much in the last couple of years. So much loss, so much pain, so much confusion. Maybe it's felt like you're living in a load of bar. Maybe you need to raise the bar. I'm so sorry that I said that joke. <laughs> felt bad immediately. <laughs> but maybe this last couple of years have really led you to settle in. To just say, this isn't great, but it's what I know. You know, it's where I am. It may not be the life I dream for myself, but it is a life. 
and to, to go somewhere else, to, to move into relationship with Jesus, to step back into the community of his church. What if it goes wrong? What if it goes sideways? What if they stop? Like, what if, what if they change their minds about me? What if they uninvite me? What if those relationships fail again? Then what? It's interesting what it says in this scripture. Verse 8, remember it says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should even notice a dead dog like me? I'm not worthy of this. But it says in verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He didn't just give him a seat. He gave him prime seating. A king's table in those days was organized into different actual tables. There was a big room that was called the king's table, and it was made up of many different tables. And some of those tables had uh, military leaders at them, and they would all sit there together and, and, you know, eat meat. And then they had other tables that were for the nobles and the leaders, and they would sit there together. In Israel, they had a table that was for the high priests and the religious men of honor. And then there was the table where the king physically sat, and that was reserved for his family. Only his family ate there, his wife and his children, but especially his heirs. He had a lot of children. They didn't all sit there. That is the table that Mephibosheth sat at. That is the position he was given. It's not a position that disappears, that goes away, that gets revoked, that gets removed, that gets changed. He didn't say, I'm gonna bring you into this space like one of my lieutenants, like one of my generals, like someone from my court. He said, I'm bringing you back into this space as one of my children, as a son. You're not gonna sit at a table for someone who is hired by me. You are gonna sit at a table for someone whom I love, someone whom I am, I am connected to in a way that is deeper than anybody else. You, Mephibosheth, from this day forward are one of my sons. Did you know that the Bible says that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you are an adopted son or daughter of the king. You are at his table. He doesn't redact that. He doesn't take it away. It doesn't matter what you do from this point forward. There is nothing you can do to rescind his hand of honor and blessing off your life. He has paid the price. He has defeated death. And he's given you a seat at his table. And the highest position of honor has been reserved for you. He's brought you in there because of the way that he loves you. Because of his kindness for you because of the dreams that he has for you. But I get it. I know it's hard to believe. Too good to be true. Should I ever leave Lodabar? Will that be okay? There was a disciple of Jesus' name, Thomas. Poor Thomas. He did one thing, and now he's forever known as Doubting Thomas. But he doubted. He didn't know. He said, you know, I, I don't know, guys. Maybe I should go back to my old life. I should I should." hide and put this Jesus stuff behind me. I hear you telling me he's resurrected, but I haven't seen it. I find it hard to believe. And it says here in John chapter, chapter 20, it says, he said to them, Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I cannot believe it. Well, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out. Put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you believed. Well, blessed are those who have not seen and had yet believed. Thomas had to see it to believe it. I wish that I could bring Jesus for you here to put your hands in his side, to touch the holes in his hands, to know that he really has done this great thing for you. I can't do that. I can't show you his scars, but what I can do is show you my scars. I can tell you that before I knew Jesus, I was so broken and hurting that I did not want to live anymore. I was living as far away from God as I could find. I was hurting people. I was every definition of the word lost. And then I met Jesus. I understood what he had done for me, where he had invited me to live, where he had invited me to go. And the next day after I gave my life to him, I didn't wake up with everything that had ever been wrong with me gone. It doesn't work like that. I was still depressed. I was still in a lot of trouble. But I had a hope that I've never had before. I had a peace that I couldn't explain. I had a purpose and a future that I had never seen for myself. I'm completely different, changed. I've gotten to tell people about what he's done for me for years because I was one way and then I met Jesus and now I'm another way. I was dead and now I'm alive again. I, I can't show you his scars, but I could tell you that in this room right now, are examples of people who've gone from death to life, who've seen healing happen in their lives, in their homes, in their marriages, in their hearts. Brokenness that they never thought could be restored, restored again. In just a few moments, we're going to baptize in this space. And you get to watch someone declare to you today that they've gone from death to life, from defeat to victory, that everything is changed for them forevermore. That is what it means to follow Jesus. You have a seat at the table forevermore. And listen, as your church, we're here to make sure that you always have a seat at this table. No matter where you go, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, you belong in this space. You belong with these people. You belong in this place because you are a son or a daughter of the King alongside each and every one of us. None of us will be perfect ever. None of us will get it right every time. But together, we have been given a gift that will never be rescinded. If you're in here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, he's done all the work for you. He's already prepared the way. He's already paid the price for you. All you have to do to get that seat at the table is the same thing that Mephibosheth had to do. You just have to go from where you are to the table. Sit down and enjoy. There's work to be done after you find freedom. You'll discover your purpose. He has so much in store for you. But all you have to do today is say yes. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're ready to make that decision, would you just say this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done for me, for the gift of your life for mine. I believe in you today. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for every mistake and everything that's ever brought me away from you. I worship you today, God. All that I am from this day forward, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.